0: well, this will probably make a good memory. (laughs) And I thought I'd do that all the time where I'm like, okay, I'll I'll enjoy this in retrospect. And it's taken a lifetime to realize that it it doesn't work like that. Like if, if you're putting on a performance, you're not being yourself. Welcome to the Power Hour, the weekly podcast
1: that will motivate you to pursue your passion and to achieve success. I'm Adrienne Herbert, international speaker, fitness coach, Adidas global ambassador and entrepreneur. Each week I'll be talking to today's leading coaches, creatives, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, morning routines and rules to live by. The Power Hour is all about taking just 1 hour each day to help you improve your life and unlock your full potential. Whether you want to build a business, write a book, run a marathon or maybe you're just looking for a spark of inspiration. The Power Hour is going to help you get there faster. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. I'm back in the studio and today I'm joined by a wonderful woman, writer and activist. Her work and research is an attempt to make the world a fairer place. She travels to schools and colleges around the UK to speak to young people about mental health, body image and social and gender equality. She regularly speaks at Parliament to advise the education and health sector committees. And in 2015, she was awarded an MBE for her services to young people. She has written articles for The Guardian, Cosmopolitan magazine and The Times, a woman who is not afraid to speak her mind, both online and in real life. I'm so happy to introduce you to the author of an A to Z of Being Mental, Natasha Devon. Hello. Hello, welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming in. Oh my goodness, so many things I want to talk to you about, Natasha. Today, we're going to talk about your brilliant book, An A to Z of Being Mental, which is super comprehensive and informative. You talk in great detail about the variety of mental illnesses and the challenges that they inevitably bring, but you also talk a lot about other important issues as well in your book, which I didn't expect to be honest, And um, but it's, yeah, so many things in there. So you talk about capitalism, social equality, stigma, gender, relationship, therapy, treatment, all of these things. So I'm not sure how we're actually going to fit this into one show, but I'll do my best. Also as well, I want to say that as this community of listeners is growing so quickly, which is amazing. And it's really important to me that we discuss these kind of issues. So let's start off with your book. Why did you write this book and who did you write it for?
0: Well, it actually began its life as an exploration of language. Um, I, I'm a student of English, it's what I did at university. And um, all through my academic career, Every teacher I had used to emphasize to me how English has more words than any other language. There's never really any excuse to be lazy with your vocabulary if you're an English speaker. That's what I was taught. And it's kind of true. But then one day I sat down and I looked at how our words are apportioned. And what I discovered was if you're an English speaker, we have the smallest emotional vocabulary in the developed world. Wow. So if you look at other languages, you get so jealous. Well, I did anyway. German was my favorite because they're so specific. Like They, they have words like schadenfreude, you know, to take joy out of someone else's misfortune. which is a really brilliant word. Um, and they also have 15 different words to describe 15 different types of anger. Um, and in Greek, they've got four different words for love. And there's this Russian slang term, which is blue, And it means I love you, but I hate you in this moment. And in English, wow. we just don't have words like that. So, so what that means is because we're so vague in the way that we speak about our, our mental health and how we feel, this giant conversation, this global conversation about mental health has been kickstarted really magnificently, but everybody's talking at cross purposes. So I thought, what if I could write a book that literally got everyone on the same page, just went over you know, all the basics and, and every chapter in the book, you could write a book in its own rights <laughs> on on that topic. But I just wanted to give people a good grounding so that if they're going to be talking to their friends or their colleagues or their family about mental health, they have this understanding. And I actually, I wrote it for anyone with a brain, which is everyone, mm-hmm. but um, apparently, because the bulk of my work is with teenagers, I, I, I do come across a slightly, I don't know if immature is the word, youthful, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sort of, I, I'm young at heart. So, um, I, you know, I, I guess anything from 16 and above, it mm. would be suitable for.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely not suitable for under 16s if you are playing it out loud on Audible <laughs> because there are a few F-bombs in mm, that book. Yes, there are. Yeah. <laughs> <which> I <learned. laughs> but I um, But yeah, it's glad I'm really, I agree with everything you, you said about the book. In fact, I can't rave about this book enough and I feel like <laughs> it would be useful for so many people for young people, but also for people maybe living with someone who ha- struggles with mental health issues or for teachers to read or for parents to read, you know, it's it's yeah, great. It's fab um, and I really enjoyed it, but I also found it difficult because I think, you know, the topics are really important, but they're heavy, you know what mm. I mean? So I also found it, yeah, I guess quite difficult um so something that you talked about so brilliantly in your book one of my favorite parts is when you talk about living in a capitalist society and how how that affects our mental health and i particularly like the part about social media because I hear often, as we all do, you know, a lot of the negative correlation between social media and our mental health. And often people tend to, they'll take a hundred percent of the blame and put it on Instagram and Facebook and on us as users. And they'll kind of claim that these apps are the sole cause of the world's unhappiness. However, you gave a much more balanced view. So for anyone listening who may not have a clear understanding, please can you talk to us about what capitalism, well, what it is, why it affects us, how it affects our mental health, and most importantly, what can we do about it?
0: Well, it's interesting because we live in a consumerist capitalist society, it depends on us feeling like we need to buy stuff <laughs> um, so that the flip side of that coin is from a very early age we're exposed to advertising messages and what they tell us is that on our own we're not good enough and we, we need to be on this constant quest for um, self-improvement but not in a deep way in a very superficial surface way. Um, and so that means that when we step into the digital sphere, we're, um, because social media is not free, <laughs> you know, it's, it's paid for by advertisers. We are absorbing all of these messages that tell us that we're fundamentally not good enough. And that, um, is one of the the mechanisms by which capitalism works, but it is also one of the mechanisms by which addiction works. You know, if, if you're an addict, it's because you feel that you are lacking in some way and you need to fix that through consumption and that creates a lot of guilt and shame and, and sort of feeds into the cycle. So I, I guess to an extent, everybody that lives in the, in the Western world is an, an addict. We're addicted to something. You go to other countries in the world where they don't have this structure and they, they're they much more content with what they, they have. So That has obvious implications for mental health. But I do I get very frustrated by politicians in particular who place all the blame for poor mental health in young people on social media it's very convenient for them mm. um, I remember I went to see <laughs> a, a presentation by uh, a government representative who you, you can literally see anxiety and self-harm in particular started to rise really steeply after 2010 and and he was showing this graph and he said of course we're Placing the blame for this on smartphones. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure you are. Uh, because it failed to acknowledge that, you know, in 2010 we also had austerity. We had Michael Gove stomping all over the education system. You know, there were so many other things which affected the way that young people live. And I think ultimately we have to see social media as it's like a mirror. It's holding a mirror up to the culture that we have created. You cannot blame Instagram in of itself. Like if you look at, for example, um girls generally report much higher levels of dissatisfaction, insecurity and anxiety after using social media than boys. And that's because I think we socialize girls from a very early age to seek validation, um, to do things for other people and to almost outsource their self-esteem. So it's little wonder then that they are Photoshopping their selfies and then wanting 30 likes within the first five minutes of putting it up. That's a symptom. That's not Instagram's fault. That's a whole cultural issue.
1: Yeah, yeah, true. And I think exactly what you said then about, you know, um, social media apps like holding up a mirror. I think that's really, really powerful because often I've heard people say before that, you know, social media hasn't changed our behavior. It's just exposed it. You know, we've always maybe compared ourselves or we've always, as you said, been taught to want to buy this product to look better or buy this, I don't know, experience to feel better or all these different things. Whereas now we can share them on social media and we can see other people doing them as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not that we weren't doing them before, but maybe we just see it way more now, like 24 hours a day instead of before when you might like, I guess back in the day, I don't know, people would kind of gossip about you know with then next door neighbor or they'd look out of the curtains or that kind of thing to see that comparison thing they still did it but Mm. maybe they just couldn't do it as as often and also as um as deep do you know what I mean now we can see everything because this whole oversharing people well maybe it's not oversharing but we're just all lots of people are sharing everything Mm. so because we can see so much maybe that's why we're now do you know what I mean feeling like uh, I guess it's more magnified.
0: Well, it's interesting. I I had um, a meeting with um, somebody who works for Microsoft recently. And what he was saying is that the more information you have, the more you will try to find a simple binary narrative that helps you make sense of it. So the internet should have made humankind more intelligent, if you think about it, because, it, you know, we were never designed to know what's happening overseas or, uh, you know, to have so many different perspectives. But what it's actually done is it's overwhelmed us a little bit. Mm. So that's why now we've become so like we are, we're attaching ourselves to personalities rather than ideas. And, you know, whatever it is that she says, I'm going to go with that um, because we're we're confused. Mm. You know, it's it's actually It's made us less intelligent because we're less open to nuance Mm. now, which is slightly terrifying, I think.
1: Gosh, yeah. And I think for me personally, I think something I always whenever I get asked about, you know, social media and obviously I use social media a lot is you know, something that I think is hugely positive about it is how it has kind of democratized, you know, uh, our voices and how it's opened up, you know, it's so much more diverse. And, you know, I think that is something that is just always, well, can be overlooked. You know, I think back to when I was in school and yes, I didn't have, I actually had a Nokia phone. So, but we didn't have social media, but I did have a phone which you could play snake on in (laughs) lessons. But yeah, I didn't have social media, but I think actually, you know, if I had, I perhaps would have had different role models in my life. I perhaps Mm. would have seen empowered women. I would have seen empowered black women. I would have seen, I guess, maybe people who looked like me. I would have seen athletic bodies. I would have seen women who, you know what I mean? Just that weren't just... One kind of woman you know, or one kind of leader, or you know I think that is something that is hugely powerful, and I think for young people now, I had a a friend of mine and her daughter she's mixed race and she you know she was saying she doesn't like her hair, and that's something that for so many she's white and her daughter's mixed race and for a lot of white women, they have this thing with their their daughter's hair how do they do their hair, how yeah. do they style their hair? you know they just want their hair to be straightened and she was kind of like, "Oh, I always show her your Instagram because she was like, "I always show her your hair and you know I think stuff like that. I mm. think if you can find people online who yeah, I guess, represent you or who speak to you because they might not be in your community. They might not be in your school or your class. So yeah, hopefully that's
0: something good from it. I, I completely agree. And that's what I say to young people. I say, you know, what social media gives you is actually the luxury to design your own social sphere. Um that's, you know, you shouldn't just be talking to people on social media that you see at school every day. You should be seeking out people who make you feel good. And and I remember in particular that that kind of yes moment that you're talking about. I found, um, do, do you know, start on me Sunday, mm-hmm. Natalie. Yeah, no. I love her because I, I, for all my life, I've looked for somebody who appreciates fashion, you know, likes makeup, but it doesn't define them. And they just kind of put a finger up to this idea that you have to conform to a certain um, archetype of, of what that kind of person would be. So she, she's having fun mm. in a really empowered way. And I'm like, yes, yeah. this is what I've been looking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, forever. she is
1: great, yeah, you're right. <laughs> super empowering, super fun. And it's like, she can talk about serious things, but as you said, she can still wear a bold, bright pink lipstick. And it's yeah. not that the two are mutually exclusive, you know, when people are like, well, if you're a feminist, how come you want a design handbag? Do you know what I mean? Exactly. It's like, you can still have, as you said, interest in fashion and and all of those things. And yeah, I guess talk about body confidence, body image all of those things yeah natalie's amazing um and i guess yeah social media is just one part of it but i think the whole capitalist thing and the way you talk about it in your book is brilliant and i guess this constant consume 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 it is upon us even as adults it's difficult so yeah i guess what can we do if we do you know what i mean to kind of unpick it a little bit
0: Well, I I think um, one of the things that we're terrible at is being content with what we have. And a a lot of um, the, the way that you can unpick that is to work out what your motivation is. Uh, because we're we 're given motivation, so, so from the moment we 're born, we're told right your your purpose on earth is to make as much money as possible <laughs> and then spend it yeah. right? and that 's not a motivation that makes many people happy um, so if you then think about, well you know why am I getting out of bed in the morning what What really puts fire in my belly as long as you are always serving that intrinsic motivation you will be happy regardless of how much you have materially so for me for example um, I am I am motivated by the idea that I am making a difference um, and that oh that sounds so wanky. No, it but, doesn't because you yeah. are making a difference. But, that, but honestly, you know, like every time I get an email from someone saying either, oh, you spoke in my school, or, I read your book and it's really made me think different about that's when I'm like, yes. And, you know, it gives me the energy to carry on another day. As long as I'm doing that, you know, I could be living in a hole in the ground. Mm. Uh, you know, I wouldn't care because I, I'm serving my, my motivation. So, and people are motivated by different things. Like um, my brother, for example, is very motivated by freedom so he can like rock up in another country. He has no money. He doesn't know where he is. He has nowhere to stay. And then six months later, like he's got a flat, he's got a girlfriend, he's got a job. I'm like, wow, (laughs) yeah, but that's what, that's what, you know, excites him. Mm -hmm. So he's worked out a, a strategy where he, he works for six months of the year back home, saves up money and then travels for six months of the year that's what makes him happy. Mm, yeah.
1: That's important to him. Yeah. And I guess, how did you, how long did it take a long time for you to figure that out? Because I guess for so many people, they, as you said, these other motivations mm. are given to us and that's actually the word motivation. I know it's in different contexts, but it's something I get asked about so much, especially working in the fitness space or, you know getting up early, as I'll talk to you about later, it's a question that comes up a lot, is how do you get motivated? How do you stay motivated? So I guess, um, yeah, not everyone, we can't always figure it out at school or at Mm. university or even maybe... 10 years after that, I guess for some people it's, it's later. How did you kind of navigate that and figure out when you, when did you figure that
0: out? It was actually, I hate to say it, I had this horrible ex-boyfriend who um, was just the worst. He, he asked me a very insightful question. Um, it was at a time in my life where I could have gone in any number of different directions. So I would just been given my monthly column in Cosmopolitan magazine, which um, was a dream come true. Um, and I was doing sort of bits of TV, Et cetera, et cetera. But I was it was also when the the stuff in schools was really taking off. And I remember he said to me, you know, what is it that if you could pick one, what would you do? And without hesitation, I said the school stuff. You know, mm. as as long as I'm plugged into, because I love working with teenagers because they're so random, and they they force you to think outside the box because they they haven't yet been indoctrinated into this you can't change it way of thinking. So sometimes they'll ask me a question. They'll be they'll say, you know, why do we think this? And and I'll go, I don't know, <laughs> I don't mm, know. Yeah. Um, and I love that. That's that's what excites me. So I realized in that moment that as long as I was always plugged into that world I, w- I would always be happy and and i have um, you know that kind of portfolio career where i do lots of different bits and pieces but i know that i will always need to be going into schools to be happy
1: mm. wow that's really interesting so i guess for anyone listening to this podcast if they are struggling however much or however little mm. um i guess some if you, could, if you could talk about something that would help them today something they could do today or this week because i really want people i guess to know that however bad they might be feeling mm there can be a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, they don't have to accept it and just suffer indefinitely.
0: There's a a few things. Um, So I would say one of the things that when I was at my absolute lowest point that I had to do was I had to bargain with myself to get to a point where um, I was up and dressed. (laughs) So, uh, you know, when we think about, and it kind of plays into power hour, I guess a a little bit like, but when we think about our morning routine, we think of uh, I'll get dressed and then, but actually there's lots of steps in, in, in that, uh, interim kind of period. So I would break it down into, I'm just going to put my feet on the floor. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to put the kettle on. I'm going to make a cup of tea. And I wouldn't think beyond that step. Um, you know, I'm going to get in the shower I'm I'm going to put my clothes on and then I would reach a point where I would be up and dressed and that that would be an achievement you know and I'd pat myself on the back for that so I would say whatever it is that you need to do break it down into your components and you know people always say that exercise is as effective for mild to moderate feelings of depression than either therapy or or medication and that's technically scientifically true but if you say to somebody who is you know really low you need to do some exercise, it's, you know, it's not going to happen. So I always say like, you know, whatever you can do, just any affirmative action is an achievement. It's a victory. So if that involves putting some Rihanna on and dancing around in your pants or just doing a few yoga stretches, like whatever it is, whatever you can manage, just try and then acknowledge that, you know, be kind to yourself and go, I did something and something is better than nothing.
1: Mm, yeah I like that and I think with the whole being kind to yourself thing which I, I do hear a lot of people saying but not necessarily mm. doing I think you know something that I, uh, struck me was you know when you just said about you know the simple steps so those were perhaps when you were at your lowest you said you know there were simple steps but I think for some people who might not be at the lowest but they're still struggling with something and so they'll say you know we're, we're almost in this thing now with where you can't speak out or or complain or, you know what I mean, say, Oh, I'm tired or this is going not going well or da 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 because that whole thing of, you know, well, it's all relative and actually there's someone far worse off than you who, <laughs> yeah. who, who is at their lowest. Or there's someone who you know, I've had it I actually had it a few weeks ago when I said something about being tired because I'm a human being and I get tired sometimes. And- Oh,
0: you have shameful.
1: I know, yeah. And a lady who has three children said to me, oh, you're tired. And she basically was like, I've got three kids. You've only got one to worry about. Basically was like, you're right. not, it was that thing of you're not as tired as me, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that is something that I think people go, well, I'm not allowed to, you know, everyone's life obviously is different, but our feelings and our, you know, emotions and all these things that we, whatever your struggle is, mm-hmm. it's not like a battle of- whose struggle is worse. It's, yeah. you're allowed to have a bad day or whatever, even if your life's great. Do you yeah. know what I
0: mean? Completely. And uh, the, the book is illustrated by Ruby Elliott, who goes by Ruby, et cetera, online. And she's, I love her brain. She's so darkly comic right. that she's amazing. And she drew in the book, um, this thing called the, the imagined hierarchy of human suffering, where basically, even if you are, you know, really suffering, no one ever feels entitled. Mm to that and I don't know whether that's a British thing that maybe we feel some kind of residual guilt from like the empire days where we kind of think, oh yeah, we have it so good. But um, I do remember, you know, I think it might be a wartime generation thing because I remember my grandparents like, when I when I would cry as a kid, they'd be like, I'll take you to the children's hospital and you'll see some people who
1: worse off than you have that, something that to thing. cry about. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: And I don't think that comes from a bad place. But what it does teach you is that you're not entitled to feel your feelings and mm. um, and you are you know, it's fine.
1: And I guess throughout all this process as well, just like, is it the same as you know, like with a physical health condition, Mm. you know, it can improve and some people will completely recover. Sadly, some people won't, but I guess within that journey, like for example, with asthma, you might have asthma and sometimes you might have to treat the condition and it might be bad. It might get better. And sometimes it might go away completely, but having asthma doesn't define you or Mm. your sense of self-worth. You don't kind of come with this label of, asthma, you know, like, whereas if people say I am depressed or I am anxious, it kind of, yeah, I guess for some people they can feel defined by that. So is it the same for mental illness as well as it is with physical? What do you think?
0: Definitely. One of the things that it says in the mental health media charter actually is don't put that label on people. Don't say she is anorexic. He is bipolar you know, they are experiencing anorexia, they have bipolar disorder and it's something that you live alongside. For about 50% of people who have one episode of depression or anxiety, they recover and never relapse. But for the other 50%, um, it's more of a maintaining type uh, deal. And I would definitely put myself in in the latter 50%. And one of the things that took a lot of pressure off me, I think, Because particularly in the way that mental health stories are presented, it's always very much this person was really sick and now now they're better. And so that meant that every time I had a bad day, I felt like, oh, it's back. I'm back to square one. And then when I was in a good place, I felt this pressure to maintain it. it it's a bit like, um, you, you know, when you you go on a diet and you lose the weight, and you're like, I, oh, and you you get the fear of like, oh, but now I have to stay this weight. It would, which is a really unhealthy way to, <laughs> to approach anything. Mm-hmm. So I I would always feel feel that uh, pressure to to maintain it. And there was a. A freedom and um, a, a kind of a pleasure in in letting go of that and going do you know what it's it's gonna be undulating mm. my journey my you can't see but I'm doing undulating <laughs> with my hand and flows. yeah ebbs and flows exactly
1: yeah yeah and I heard a guy speaking recently on a podcast he spoke so beautifully and he said that he suffered with depression I think it'd been about three or four years before when he'd had think two years and he said that in that time you know he considered ending his life he felt like nobody in the world could understand what he was going through he said he didn't feel any emotion no he didn't feel sadness he didn't feel he felt nothing he said he just yeah felt nothing and felt like he had just this huge weight covering him all the time that he couldn't lift up and he said that at that time if someone had said to him that you know in two years time you're going to be happy or you're going to feel excitement or you're going to feel anger or you're going to start a business or you're going to feel motivated or inspired. He said, I would never have believed them. Not even for a second, which is why he wanted to to end his life. However, when he was telling this story four years on, he was saying, you know, that he did actually make a full recovery from depression and he, and he did have, you know, positive relationships in his life. He had started this business. He'd all of these things. And he said, you know, that was something that I went through and I can't really, you know, the whole, it was a very long podcast and he talked about his recovery journey, but I did think that was really powerful mm-hmm. to hear because I think often, yeah, when you're in something, you just think it will never end. Yeah. And especially for young people, I think something that's, you you know, is not useful is when people go, oh, this is just how you feel right now. And mm-hmm. it's just a phase and you're 15. Of course you feel low, like you're going to get over it. But equally, knowing, giving people hope that even no matter how bad it is, you can recover.
0: Well, I, I also think the other thing to bear in mind, if you're talking to a teenager is that they have no blueprint for adult life without mental illness. So if, if you experience mental illness at the average onset age, which is 14, you might think this is adulthood. And so you, part of it is to, um, reassure them that no this is not what life is going to be like forever because that's one of the things that would make you feel hopeless that would um i mean it it wouldn't surprise me if if a person became suicidal if they thought that they had to deal with that forever but i think what you say touches on something really important that depression is so often used interchangeably with sadness but in fact most of the people that i've spoken to who have had depression say that it's an absence as opposed to a presence of feeling it's I can't be bothered with anything. And I would love to feel sad. I would love to cry because at least that would be something. Mm. And to an extent, again, I feel like we live in a culture which encourages us towards that. We're, we're taught to, um, separate ourselves from so much of what we experience because life is frantic because it's noisy. And that, you know, there's just so much that we're expected to do and get our heads down and get on with it. We don't, take stock. We don't allow ourselves to feel, you know, like even I read somewhere that um, getting the tube at rush hour, you experience the same levels of stress as a World War II fighter pilot. Wow. But obviously you can't do that every day. So you distance yourself from it and you just disconnect and you plug into something else. You put your headphones in, you read the paper. So we're almost encouraged to desensitize ourselves. And then it's, it's almost a culture that is geared towards ending up in a place where you're depressed, if that makes any sense. Mm.
1: Yeah, it does. And I think it also then encourages us to think, well, everyone else is doing it. So it can't be that bad. Do mm. you know what I mean? You think well, everyone else manages to, you know, as you said, go on the or do this or do that. And again, it's that thing of not validating your feelings. You, your feelings are valid. Your mm. emotions are valid. You're allowed to feel you know, exhausted or, or, or upset or whatever you're feeling is mm. without thinking and comparing it to someone else's.
0: It's interesting. Actually, I, I went to, uh, Nepal, uh, last autumn and I was working in a school over there, but also with a charity, um, that it, the, the main aim of the charity is to get more girls into education. But in order to do that, you also have to work with the boys, obviously. And there is a real taboo in Kathmandu where I was working around showing anger, And it was interesting because when I first arrived there, I had a couple of days to explore and I was thinking, wow, everyone seems really chilled. (laughs) This is lovely. Mm -hmm. And it never occurred to me that they might be having a bad day, but they couldn't, they weren't allowed to, to express that and the impact that that might have. And when I was talking to a lot of the young men, they were saying, um, the way they they would phrase it is they'd say, can you help me? Because sometimes I feel angry. And I was like, well, of course you do. It's, (laughs) you know, you're a human being. Mm. And they said, can you help me to stop feeling angry? And I said, no, I can't, I can't help you to stop feeling angry. I can help you to express that anger in a way that's healthy and doesn't hurt other people. But Mm. I, that's what I think we need to do. We need to separate out the emotion from how the emotion is expressed. You're allowed to feel whatever you like, mm. but you you then have a choice as to how you put that out into the world, you know? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass.
1: I'm going to talk to you about the power hour. Okay. So, because this is the power hour show and I don't know, Natasha, do you know anything about my early morning power hour?
0: I don't know anything about your early morning power hour. Please tell me.
1: Okay. So I get up very early every day. I've been doing this for about two years. So I started doing it because I was training for a race. I was training for the London marathon. I have a young son. And at the time I was kind of like we all are thinking I need more hours in the day. Mm. How am I going to do this and do this and do this and do this? And I was like, the only way I can do it. Is if I just get up a bit earlier before Jude wakes up so that's why I started it but since then it's now evolved into this like I guess it's become my thing you know I get up and I have this structured morning routine it's different every day but it's always an hour for myself I write down what I'm going to do in that hour so whether that's going for my run or whether that's doing some admin whether that's reading whether that's stretching it's always written down the night before in my power hour tomorrow, I am doing this Mm. and I try and do it. And yeah, it's really had a huge positive impact on my life. It's made me, well, lots of things, but more creative. I have, I feel like I have more, I have a sense of calm in the mornings. I have more time for my son. I don't have to rush him to get ready. Well, sometimes we still do, but that's, you know, yeah reality of having a seven year old. And yeah, I guess it's just become um, a thing that now other people have started to say, I'm gonna try that. And then yeah, people who've been on the show have given us their morning routines, what they do. We've had everything from people having cold showers, people doing celery juice first thing on an empty stomach. We've had people who say that their power hour actually isn't in the morning, but it's before bed or Mm. all different things. So my first question is, do you think that having a structured morning routine is helpful?
0: I really do. Um, so uh, I share a publisher with uh, an amazing woman called Shuru Izadi. In fact, you should get her on. Yeah, uh, She wrote a book called The Kindness Method. And it's all about um, looking at your habits, uh, recognizing that whatever your instinctual coping mechanisms are for stress, it's serving you in some way. So, you know, if you are drinking, for example, what you think is too much, she says, you know, start from a point of view of rather than beating yourself up and saying, I'm drinking too much. Think, what is this giving me? Because it's obviously something that I need. And is there a better way that I could get this thing? And, um, I actually, uh, we, we did a skill swap. So I, I helped her to come up with, um, uh, a lesson plan that she could take into schools around, um, social media. And she gave me a couple of sessions of, um, I guess coaching. And I was saying one of my issues is that I never have the same day twice. And that is brilliant because, um, I I get bored quite easily, Uh, but also it means I don't really have a routine. And she said, well, what if you could do the same thing in the mornings and in the evenings? So let's, let's look at what your first hour of the day looks like and if you do the same thing that will give you a sense of kind of grounding and and it really really helped me And one of the things that I did, um, so a lot of people I know who have mental health issues have completely disengaged from the news um, that, you know, we live in obviously very fractious times and they say it's not helpful to, you know, hear people (laughs) screaming at each other about Brexit. It's not not helpful for my mindset. And I completely get that. But I have always been interested in current affairs. I'm a very political animal. In fact, I have to rein it in sometimes when I'm doing a talk. I'm like, no one wants to know your lefty views and just keep keep them to yourself. But, you know, it interests me and and I, I like knowing what's going on. Uh, But what I used to do is in the morning, I I would put the radio on and I listened to a phone-in show and um, these people that would ring in, I don't know what it is about racists that they're they're (laughs) attracted to phone-in shows, but I would leave the house and my my shoulders would be around my ears because I'm like oh my god how are people this stupid right and I thought this isn't good for me so now <laughs> in the morning I put on radio four okay right because everything is like this they have genuine experts on and even if we have a nuclear war we're going to tell you in this voice because <laughs> everything's fine right great. and it's brilliant because I still get the news but I get it delivered in a very calm way and that's that's just one of the things that I did
1: great okay <laughs> so it's, that's perfect perfect and I think so what does your morning routine look like now and what time as well what time do you have an alarm
0: well it, what time i get up really varies yeah. from day to day um i i for me it's more important that i get a good amount of sleep than getting up at the same time every day mm-hmm. so if i've uh, got home late i'll try and make sure that i can get up late um so what i what i do is um i keep a, a face mask in the fridge so to wake myself up I the first thing I do is put my my face mask on and I put on a pot of coffee put on radio four and I potter I love a potter in the morning yeah I love the idea that I'm I'm not gonna rush I would rather get up you know that little bit earlier and not have to be like oh shower clothes out the door Um, actually you know I just sort of potter around I think about stuff Mm. pick things up put them down again do you do that do you potter
1: not in my power hour, but I do potter <laughs> in the evening. So yeah. I'm yeah, I, I call it faffing, but yeah, I do. <laughs> but I really like that you said that because I think often people, a lot of people that have been on the show, if they do have a, a, a structured morning routine, then it's quite, you know, we talk a lot about you know productivity and mm. you know trying to get the best out of every single day which is something that i am a true believer of so i can't kind of dilute that it's just who i am you know i yeah. definitely believe that to be true and for me it works it motivates me but i also really like that you shared that because getting up earlier doesn't necessarily mean you have to get up earlier to do more things you don't mm. have to get up earlier to yeah train for a and write a book you can get up earlier to give yourself as you said more time to do the things you like doing so you're yeah. not rushing so you're not skipping breakfast and legging it to the station you've just got time. If you want to potter, you can potter. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great.
0: And also I think, I mean, I, I make a joke of this where I say I'm an overthinker and fortunately I have found a way to monetize that. (laughs) I now (laughs) overthink for a living, but a, a lot of my job involves just working out what, what I think about stuff or how things are connected and, and reflecting on what's happened the previous day, you know, particularly when you work with young people, the trends change, so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, you know, I'm getting all this information from young people about what they're exposed to, what their, their school experience is like. And, and I need time to absorb and reflect that and um, take what's useful and, and input it into my work. So it, it's carving out that bit of time just to think.
1: Mm, yeah which i don't think we we do much anymore because we're always being given information from other people do you know what i mean like there's always media coming at you somewhere a picture a sound a video a photo so yeah i think having just time alone Mm. to think like einstein apparently he used to sit for four hours in his chair and just think nice and not fall asleep
0: yeah i feel like if i sat in a chair and was like i'm just gonna
1: (laughs) think i would definitely fall asleep
0: yeah Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So what could our listeners do this week? I encourage, um, I guess each week to give us like a power hour challenge. Hmm. So it's encouraging the listeners to think about something they could do this week. And it could be for one hour. It could be for an hour every day, Hmm. or it could just be trying something new to, I guess, yeah, help them, um, have a better week.
0: Well, so we, uh, I think, celebrate overwork, um, and we we're always praising people when they're like, "Oh, you're like Superwoman." I've got no idea how you've achieved so much this week. But um, what uh, Mental Health First Aid England, who I work very closely with, they recommend that for mental well-being, so I guess like mental fitness, every person should ring fence an hour of their day every day to empty their stress bucket. And it, emptying of the stress bucket is basically any activity which is endorphin producing. Um, so it can be physical activity, it can be relaxation, it can be something creative. They're all great endorphin producers. And if you take the time to eat healthily and go to the gym, mm-hmm. you should be taking the time to do this as well. Mm-hmm. It's not indulgent to ring fence that time because it's what what keeps you well so I would um I, I sometimes think that an hour is maybe a bit unrealistic so I always say to people aim for half an hour a day mm-hmm. but see I, the challenge is see if you can do that for a week half an hour every day to do something just because just because just because
1: yeah I like that and I think something that I see in my space because I work with a lot of freelancers a lot of creative people is that everything you do or create should be a side hustle or it should Mm. be monetized yeah and as you said it's like what if it's just your hobby what if you're just like really good at i don't know say writing poetry and then someone's like you should do a poetry night you should perform those poems you should do them on youtube it's like no i just want to do them for
0: me yeah just to enjoy it I know I I feel like um Americans are very good at that the side hustle thing but they're they're also very good at being encouraging like like when I talk to an American about what I do I say oh you know I, I go into schools and I work with young people they're like wow good for you what a worthwhile thing to do with your time when I say that to a British person the first question they ask me is how do you make money out of that (laughs) always (laughs)
1: they're like why would you do that otherwise who does
0: she think she is i bet yeah i bet she doesn't do that yeah really (laughs) that's so interesting or maybe
1: schools are just different here they're like gosh you must get paid a lot to do that because nobody (laughs) wants that job okay and my closing question i can't believe we've got to the end but my closing question which i ask to each guest as you've talked so beautifully today about you know, all the things that you've learned, that's come from experience. And, you know, you share very openly in your book about your own experience with mental health and now with the work that you do. So the question is, what is the most valuable thing that time has taught you?
0: The most valuable thing that time has taught me is that when you are being yourself, you don't notice yourself being yourself. So I think um, th- actually there's a brilliant book called Help by Simon Amstel. I actually have it on audiobook, um, which I think is the best format to have it in because it's bits of his stand up, which he then um, segues with uh, sort of his wisdom about life or puts context to them. And it's beautiful. It's such a beautiful book. But there's one moment in it where I thought, oh, I relate to that so hard, where he says that um, he's a- he's in France and um they, he's persuaded, he, you know, he's not a particularly spontaneous person and he's persuaded, I think, to, to do something like run naked up the Eiffel Tower or something like that, mm-hmm. yeah. And just something that he wouldn't do. And he said, I, I had this moment where I thought well, this will probably make a good memory. <laughs> and I thought I do that all the time where I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll enjoy this in retrospect. Yeah. And it's taken a lifetime to realize that it, it doesn't work like that. Like if, you know, if you're putting on a performance, you're not being yourself. And mm. uh, actually the, the moments which are most authentic, you're not having that meta conversation <laughs> where you're going, you know, oh, what, is, what does she think of me right now? Or did I say that right? You're just doing it, you know? Mm.
1: Yeah, I love that and I completely again can relate because I think often people we do that don't we we're like yeah. not just as well about um, you know the, res- the retrospect but actually even when you're doing so for example if, if for me what comes to mind straight away is when I'm training for a race mm. I might have 10 weeks training for the race training for the race training for the race but then when you're actually doing the race you're like I don't know you're kind of thinking about something else do you know what yeah, I mean yeah, kind of being yeah. like this is you actually doing it now this so is yeah, it. yeah yeah really experiencing that <laughs> wow thank you for sharing that And thank you so much for coming in. So for everyone listening, if they want to hear more from you, where can they find this brilliant book, which I'm obsessed with? (laughs) And um, yeah, where can they find you
0: online and in real life? Uh, my website is natashadevon.com. Um, they There on the books page. You can buy the book, uh, Beginner's Guide to Being Mental. But you can also download my recommended reading list. Um, so there's loads of books on there. Um, not all by me, <laughs> um, which um, I've kind of broken it down into best for young people, best for parents, best for teachers, best for everyone. Um, so you can uh, have a look at that. Um, you can find me on social media. I'm underscore Natasha Devon. I'm not on Facebook because it's too annoying, but I am on um, Twitter and Instagram so you can find me on there and in real life i mean for at least three days a week i'm kind of touring the uk um, going into to various schools so i try to every day on my twitter say i'm in this uh, you know like a rock star yes <laughs> <arrived>. hi yeah <laughs> wembley yeah <laughs> hello heather <Emma Wemstead. laughs> uh, yeah so uh, you know you might see that I'm, I'm in your town and if you see me wave
1: Yeah. (laughs) And can schools reach out to you online if they want to get you to come to their school? Yeah, absolutely. Please do awesome thanks so much natasha and thank you everybody for listening i really hope that you found this episode useful and i would encourage you to yeah check out natasha's work and to order or download for audible um, her book an A to dead of being mental also if you are enjoying the show don't forget to subscribe leave us a rate and a review on itunes and if you think somebody else would get benefit from hearing this show today then please do share it with them as well thanks so much for listening everyone i really do appreciate your time see ya